Playtime Records is the record label that he's representing. Obviously, that is also the name of the name of Tom Hanks' production company. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, you know, even though this film failed, he, you know, obviously has still some affection for it. Um, the the offer that they get from him is not, you know, just a local tour of like the three local cities, but of all the state fairs across the whole country. <laughs> Um, there are a number of tours of state fairs going on and they are going to take part in in one of those state fairs things. Um, and of course, this is where, um, you know, much like uh, Justin Timberlake coming in and telling people uh, to drop the the, he says, just call yourself the Wonders because, you know, <laughs> you know like it doesn't make sense the other way. Um, you know, and I like as well that, um, that Steve Zahn is on board with it. He's like, yeah, as in, mm-hmm. I wonder where the Anidias went. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, straight Aww. away he's like, "Yeah, this guy knows what he's doing." And I like as well how, like, he was the first to sign the contract with um, Phil, and here as well, he's just like, "Yeah, I'm going to sign the contract." <laughs> like, he just wants to get on and you know go out there and play bass. He's not really, you know, sorry, play guitar. He's not really that concerned, um, you know. But we do find, of course, that this is the point where um, the bass player, TB player, as he is, um, will be leaving for the Marines um, at the end of August. Of course, Mr. White is like, yeah, but you're still in the band until the end of August, aren't you? <laughs> like, um, and he's like, yeah. So he's like, okay, then, you know. It's like, cool, well, Semper Fi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's another one where in the movies we've seen 500 times before, it's this big mm-hmm. blow up with the band and or Mr. White has to fire him. And instead, things just keep on going very nicely. And then, of course, he's like, hey, guy, uh, put on these sunglasses. <laughs> and, that's, um, and of course, he's like, you're all going to get suits. You're going to get suits that match. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, will become a running joke where every time he sees him in a new color suit, he's like, have I ever told you red looks great on you? Um, and then he will <laughs> he'll change that as the film goes on. But I just like that every color looks good on him, but he only likes it if they're all wearing suits that are the same and if Guy is wearing sunglasses. That is obviously the vision he has, um, you know, for them as, uh, you know, as a band, um, you know. And abruptly, we are suddenly... With them meeting everybody else who's on tour, uh, which, of course, are the rest of the Playtone uh, Galaxy of Stars, um, which includes uh, Freddie Fredrickson, who I think is supposed to be a Frankie Valley type. Um, and also, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, oh, I did great. like that song because I I thought that I thought that sounded like some kind of Bond theme type thing. That seemed to be the, the vibe that I was getting from it. I mean, I don't know. I got um, the impression that. In, in the pastiche world of that thing you do, there was like a Thursday night uh, crime procedural called Mr. Downtown, like a detective show, and that mm-hmm. this would be its theme song. <laughs> the, sa- the same way the Peter Gunn theme like broke off of a TV show and became arguably more famous than the show it was from. Um, yeah, but, you know, that, I mean, you're right. That kind of like the, the theme tune vibe is, is what I was picking up from him. Mm. Uh, we also have the Chant- Chantrelites. Chantrelines, Chantrelines, mm-hmm. um, who obviously are uh, an all-black girl group, um, and then also we have Diane Dane, who I feel is at the end of her career, and these, um, you know, this is she's not an up-and-coming act who is doing these state fairs because she's starting out. She's doing these state fairs because she's got nowhere else to do mm. yeah. her uh, her singing, um, you know. But she's still, you know, fairly uppity and aloof with <laughs> with some of the other people that are on the tour. Uh, you know, as a fallen star generally is. Um, but yeah. Um, and I also like there is a subtle bit of kind of like um, kind of time and place in that when some of the acts are performing, uh, the Chantrelines are not in the crowd. 
um, but they're kind of to one side behind like a curtain. Mm. Um, you know, so there is kind of, there's obviously just hints that there is kind of still segregation at some of these gigs. And to be honest, all the performances, the crowds are extremely white. There is, mm. I wasn't seeing any, any faces that were not white in those crowds, um, which I don't know if that's like a deliberate thing that Tom Hanks did, or if that was just like, um, you know, uh, kind of unintentional, but you know, it doesn't feel like he's making too much of a commentary out of it, but it's, you know, just there kind of in the background. Um, I, I was yeah. going to say, it's not really a commentary kind of movie, and it seems like that was something done more for verisimilitude than to make a point. Yeah. But it does make a point in its accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we enter the part of the film, which I am going to be calling the Top 100 Montage, because... <laughs> Um, we have some DJs who are very enthusiastic about playing this song um, and I think the first of them is the first one Paul Feig who plays the song or am I getting the order out of, uh, out of order there because there's a um, lot of I don't know who that guy is Paul Feig is I think slightly later yeah. where they all go in the studio and just to say hi and then he dismisses them yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, he yeah he plays a song. We don't get to see him to see anything, but they 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 turn up at number ninety three on the top one hundred, and they're all ecstatic about um, you know finally appearing on there. Obviously, you know uh, Tom Hanks has shown them their um, uh, you know their their single in its proper pressing with the the, the Playtone label and everything. And you know it's funny because at this point Jimmy's like, we only had one take of recording the B side. Can we do it again? And Tom Hanks is like, no, you can't. <laughs> no, that's fine. Like, that's it. It's, it's done. Fine. Yeah, I liked it. You know, I enjoyed it. So, you know, that's that's the end of this end of discussion. You know, we're not going to re-record it. Um, you know, obviously the irony is throughout this whole film, you know, for a film based on a band becoming extremely successful, never once do we see them as a band in the studio recording any songs. You know, we see them in one church being recorded and that's it. Like that's the, that's the sum total of recording that goes on. Um but yeah, and so you know they they end up at number seventy one uh, in their in their montage, and then up to number forty nine, um, and then this is where we see that um, Chad has now take he take the the help wanted sign out of the window at the appliance store, and he's going to take on the role uh, that was once occupied by Guy, um, and then they get to number forty nine, um, uh, sorry no, number twenty one, um, and you know they're at the state fair. Um, and I think this is where they do a different song other than, um, there's like a stage that's set, isn't there? Where it's got like the, their label underneath them. And, mm -hmm. uh, this is kind of like the big performance, uh, where they sing dance with me tonight instead of, um, that thing you do, mm -hmm. which, um, I'm not saying I hate that thing you do. Obviously we discussed, it's a great song, um, but it was nice to get a break and have a completely different song. <laughs> well, and I, if this just hit me the other night when I was watching it. Again, uh, attention to detail was on lock because of the weed gummy, but it occurred to me that the reason for them to be doing a different song at that point, this is basically like the midpoint of the movie, because the thing I hadn't really paid attention to before, because I'd been caught up in the momentum of their rising success, but this is actually you watching them as a band at their zenith. Like, they are all completely locked in. Their chemistry that... that Darren, as you pointed out, they've always had a good on, kind of fluid on stage chemistry, but they are locked in. Nobody is questioning, uh, you know, everybody knows their parts perfectly. Everybody, is, they're in tune with the crowd. Like the, all of that magic has all come together in this one moment. And I think if we were seeing them perform that thing you do here, 
that might get lost because of course they know that one because that's their signature tune. So for there to be this new song and where even like the bass player is kind of at his most carefree, he's he's working the stage, he's sharing Jimmy's mic. I mean, he's he's all over the place and he's sure of himself when he's been kind of the insecurest one so far. Uh, thanks, I think, to the tutelage of the Chantrelines. Um, but uh, But it's like this becomes, this is that moment where even though they have greater career success after this, this is as good as it gets. Yep. I think it's notable too that Lenny is the the lead singer on that song because he is kind of a more likable character than Jimmy and it's easier for the audience to feel really in tune and happy for them at this moment. Um, I also just really like the song. (laughs) It's a fun song. Yeah. And to Jimmy's, to Jimmy's credit, he, even though he's moved to, to support on this song, he gives it his all. He's not like, you know, Liam Gallagher, who would just sit on the apron of the stage and sulk when it was a Noel song. Like, it's just, this is what, (laughs) they're all in tune with what being in a band is about. I mean, technically speaking, with Oasis, up to a certain point, they were all Noel songs. He was just being allowed to (laughs) Fair enough. So. Anyway, here's the Wonders Wall. You deserve that's it. A, uh, hey, that's O'Neater's Wall. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, what I like as well is um, they have been given instruction by Mr. White that when they play a song, when they play that thing you do, um, you know, just that song um, when they perform, as soon as they finish, unplug your instruments and get off stage. And when they're like, what about a, you know, like an encore? And they're like, get off stage. You like, run. Just keep running. <laughs> like, run away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't go back on. And I like that there's um, like, they, you know, that after they've done Dance With Me Tonight, obviously they go to, you know, the kind of after parties and stuff with the rest of the people, um, you know, and Diane Dane is kind of talking with Jimmy um, you know, we obviously have Guy and uh, Faye kind of, you know, getting a bit closer as well. Um, and, you know, after that, um, they do uh, that thing you do again. And they do literally it's uh, it's kind of amazing how they coordinate it. But all three of the guitarists immediately unplug their instruments <laughs> and run off stage at the same moment. And, and Guy kind of just immediately jumps up and runs. Um, and it's it, it's just such a wonderful because it's like it's a, it's the, it's them putting into practice exactly what they've been mm-hmm. told, which is as soon as you finish, get off the stage. And they do that. Um, and it's at that point that they find out that they are now number seven. Uh, they have a top 10 hit, um, you know, and this is a point where they're going to be flown out to L.A. Um, and what I like here is we kind of I mean, to be honest with you, by the time we got to the end of the film and like uh, Guy and Faye were like kissing, I was like, wait, there, hold on a second was were we meant to be mm-hmm. shipping these two? Like, was that meant to be the, like, because it didn't really, like, I mean, the like the first time that we actually kind of figure any of that out is when we get this kind of exit here where they come out of the backstage and all the screaming fans are there. And obviously, you know, because Liv Tyler looks like just another screaming fan, um, the security guard puts his arm up and holds her back. Mm-hmm. And obviously... Uh, in, in another film, she would get left behind and we would never see her again or whatever. But in this film, of course, Guy spots that this has happened and then goes back and retrieves her. Um, and so I'm guessing this is a point at which we're meant to realise uh, that Guy cares about Faye um, and that they should be the main couple. But personally, I wasn't getting that vibe at all, even before this scene. And when this scene happened, I was like, OK, he cares about a fellow human being. I don't I don't think I couldn't. I wasn't really getting kind of um, them being attracted to each other. Um, but you know, maybe that was just me missing. I don't know. Was something obvious going on that I was completely missing at this particular point in the film? No, I liked um, that. Um, the it this started the beginning of a lot of compare contrast 
sort of opportunities between Jimmy and Guy. So the something would happen and Jimmy would have this opportunity to not be a bad boyfriend and he'd be like ooh that's not really for me and then guy would go well i'm the tom hanks insert so i'm going to be nice and uh, and every single time so you see live definitely uh, or Faye rather the uh, getting more and more kind of disenfranchised with her relationship and leaning more on her friendship with guy but i was a little shocked at the at the smooch at the end yeah they have good rapport but that's what it feels like to me is good rapport i mean compared to other people in the band i think like guy and lenny have great rapport and guy and faye have great rapport and then between everyone else it's whatever like they don't really care about each other seemingly um <laughs> you, you do i did appreciate yeah. that like in those brief moments you have tina who's like oh jimmy has a gal pal in faye and then later you have faye talking about tina like Oh, so she's pretty. How how so? How's she as a girlfriend? <laughs> um, just like the two women in the movie, like underscoring this this competitive female dynamic that we're supposed to understand exists, and you know, as social people. Um, and I don't know. It's one of those like I kind of wish I had was seeing this with fresh eyes. One because like would I have seen it coming? Obviously, I did because I've seen it a bunch, and I know that mm. they smooch at the end. Um, but yeah, even, even having seen it a bunch of times, it does feel kind of, okay. <laughs> like, mm. you just don't want her to go back yeah. to Erie because you want to know somebody in LA. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I mean, she, like, on the plane, she, like, has, I don't know, she's not well. Mm -hmm. And so he, like, kind of puts a blanket over. But I'm, like, I'm not getting any, like, vibes from that. I'm just, like, he's just, like, she's ill, so someone should put a blanket over her. And obviously Jimmy's ignoring her completely. So, mm -hmm. like, I, you know, it just... You know, felt a bit out of the blue. I, I think that is it. He doesn't reveal too much. I think where it turns is in the scene, spoiler alert, where, where Faye and Jimmy, where Faye breaks up with Jimmy and she walks out of the dressing room and Jimmy says, I should have broken yeah. up with you in Pittsburgh. Or I should have dumped you in Pittsburgh. And it's the moment you look at, at Tom Everett Scott's face, you look at Guy and he says to Jimmy, why couldn't you have broken up with her in Pittsburgh? And then that's when I have the moment. I'm like, oh, he's in love with her. He maybe just realized he's in love with her. Um, so then I'm okay with it, I guess. <laughs> We're in LA, so let's get to the Abba Baba Tunde of it. Um, you know, who... Um, yeah, it's, we should say, of course, uh, Abba Baba Tunde, who is wonderful in this role as Lamar. I mean, it's a, it's a cliche. And this is like the second time that Tom Hanks has uh, stumbled upon uh, this particular cliche. Um, but, you know, he worked with Tom Hanks um, in Philadelphia... Um, and obviously he was also in Science of the Lambs, so obviously he's another Jonathan Demi guy. Um, but yeah, he's like extremely enthusiastic as <laughs> as Lamar. And what you know, obviously it's really weird because like for the like remaining like third of the film, he's like quite an important character because he he keeps kind of like um, giving people advice and passing passing messages on and kind of like you know I don't know it's really weird he's kind of driving the plot a little bit. Um, and, you know, kind of giving, like, basically kind of making sure that the kind of plot moves for the next kind of, you know, few scenes. Um, yeah. Of course, they end up on a film set. Um, it's a kind of, um, uh, I don't, like, what is, there's like a how to fill a wild bikini or something. There's that, the, the beach blanket 
bikini party, like all those films of the kind of uh, 60s. Uh, where they seem to make like, I don't know, 15 films in like five years. And it's just all about people dancing on the beach, um, which is literally what this scene is. Um, and so the band are there playing, uh, you know, to to play back. And then it cuts out and we have um, we have uh, Tracy Reiner and Barry Sobel um, acting as um, you know, Anita and Goofball. Um, <laughs> Tracy Tracy Reiner, of course, was in A League of Their Own. And obviously uh, Barry Sobel, I think, wrote some of the jokes for Punchline and appeared in that. So, you know, again, Tom Hanks just calling in favours left, right and centre, including having Jonathan Demme make an appearance as a film director. Um, and I, the thing is, I would love to see Jonathan... Well, I, obviously he's not alive, but it would have been fun to have seen Jonathan Demme like, attempt to like remake some kind of like 1960s kind of bikini film. Um, you know, just, uh, just you know, kind of take a detour and do that. I mean, you know, he did that Mancurian candidate thing. I mean, I'm sure he could have... He could have told us how to fill a wild bikini. Um, yeah, and it's it's funny because, like, when when the scene kind of is over, um, you know, Jimmy says to Mr. White, you know, do we have, like, a top ten single? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, so we shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. Um, and, of course, Mr. White is like, well, you know, that's why you do this kind of stuff, <laughs> so that you can have a top ten single. The two things are kind of, you know, you, you get the publicity of being in the film, and that's how you sell your record. But, you know, just because your record's selling doesn't mean you're above doing stuff like this. Um, obviously this is the start of the cracks um, beginning to show um, and this leads to speaking of legends uh, Clint Howard um, who making a rare a rare detour into a film that wasn't directed by his brother of course you know Splash was Tom Hanks's big break uh, so I'm guessing this is um, him repaying the favour I'm sure Ron said to him would you mind giving Clint you know, just one scene or something. That's that's how he works normally. He just does a scene and then he, you know, moves on to another film and does a scene for them. Um, and then he does, you know, a cameo in one of my films. That's pretty much Clint's career. Um, and so Clint turns up as this DJ. And what I like here is how um, we really get an insight into the fact that Steve Zahn's character does not care. And when they're asking about, like, influences, <laughs> like Lenny just kind of, like, decides at this point to kind of joke around. <laughs> And while the others are kind of sense, like kind of coming up with sensible influences and people that, that you know really inspired them, he's he's just joking about and just does not. He doesn't care about this interview. He doesn't really he like he has no musical influences because he you know he's just in the band for the fun. Like he doesn't care. Um, and I just thought that's you know it's a great scene to show the differences between like each of the members of the band. Um, and of course it gives um, it gives it, what I find is I mean this is something. This is a shortcoming that existed in the film Punchline, which is in Punchline, everyone is meant to be hilarious. They get on stage and they're meant to be telling jokes and you're meant to believe all of them are stand-up comedians. Tom Hanks, as I pointed out in the episode, is funnier offstage in Punchline than he is on stage because offstage, he's just a guy who's just meant to be, you know, very quippy and that fits Tom Hanks' personality. Um, and so in this, you have to have people name their influences, but they're all a bunch of fake names. There's literally no... Like, the Beatles are the only real band that's ever really mentioned in this film. But they have to list off all these kind of fake names and they have to pretend that these are real people that they really enjoy. Um, and I think they kind of... They do manage to sell it. I think the fact that, you know, Guy is, like, a huge fan of, um, you know, Del Paxton. And obviously we've seen the Del Paxton record earlier and we... It makes it kind of sell it a bit more. But when everybody else is listing off like these fake names of people, it's like, oh, it just doesn't 
doesn't quite I mean they kind of sell it but it's not quite it's just a thing that's just hard to do on film is to have people list a bunch of fake names and it feel like you know that they're real and that people are like oh yeah of course I know all those those fake artists you know the only one that really gets sold here for me is Del Paxton but everybody else I'm like yeah you know I just kind of have to go with the film in terms of you know the whole kind of who he influences and then list off a bunch of people that never existed and just pretend they were real so lenny no he references of course the band that they just pretended to play in the movie and i'm just sitting there chortling because i anytime i'm doing some sort of podcast thing with my counterpart kelly i I, I try very hard to make or break character by throwing in things that would only be stupid and ridiculous to her. So I saw that and I was like, oh, that's what he's doing. That That's jerky. I love it. But yeah, I mean, we also then get to meet the head of the records as played by uh, Alex Rocco. Um, who I I think it's weird because I think these days most people will know Alex Rocco from The Simpsons and... <laughs> For be like that's where you in, you hear his voice and you're instantly like oh that's that's the guy off the Simpsons R.I.P. Alex Rocco because obviously he did die a few years ago, um, you know but you know he 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 obviously is the voice of uh, what's the itchy and scratchy guy the guy who owns the studio, Roger Myers yeah Roger Myers Jr. yeah so it's it's kind of weird that like when I hear his voice you know that's I think oh that's the guy who did Roger Myers Jr. I don't I mean he's also in um King Ralph where he plays like uh the Pope or something in that like there's a, a weird yeah so um uh, but yeah he's he's great as like the guy who owns the record label and does not care at all about anybody on the record label uh you know and probably never even listens to music and doesn't you know because he has he's too busy doing other stuff you know like making money he doesn't jimmy goes to try and like talk to uh soul sire who is you know the owner of the record of the label and he's basically yelling at him saying get him away from me like i you know i don't care about like the you know i haven't got time for this not um, even speaking yeah. to him, just going, this kid, get him out. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I have plans with Suzanne uh, Pochette. I can't be dealing with this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's just it's just a wonderful little cameo. And of course, this is where uh, Lenny meets the receptionist who, you know, he's kind of instantly taken with. And, you know, for a receptionist, she is insanely beautiful. So I can understand why Lenny was kind of drawn to her. Uh, but I, I like that you know that is that's going to be his story now for the rest of the film is this receptionist, um, <laughs> you know, uh, while they're in L.A. Uh, and later Vegas. Um, but at the at the same time, Gus is uh, Gus Guy is looking for somewhere to go, um, and he wants to find a good jazz club. So of course he speaks to Lamar, um, and I like that Lamar kind of like tests him by saying who played this instrument on this album. <laughs> And he takes half a second and he's like, names it. And then he's like, okay, okay, all right, get in the cap. He's like, keeping bastard. Know, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think you'll find technically it's, it's called a shibboleth. That is what it is. It's a shibboleth. That's how he, that's how he knows. Like, it's okay. Guy could use a, just a mild shooting in the face. Just a small one. That yeah. is why you shouldn't learn anything about jazz. You're far more likely to get shot in the face in a cab. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, he ends up at the blue spot where, of course, he wanders into uh, everyone's favorite MILF, uh, Rita Wilson. <laughs> a MILF that, of course, Tom Hanks is definitely milf with because we see the evidence of that in the film uh, via Colin Hanks. Um, and yeah, so Rita Wilson gets her cameo. This is like, I think this is only the third time she's been in a film with Tom, that also stars Tom Hanks. 
Um, their first one, of course, was volunteers, where they met and obviously got together. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few months later, created Colin Hanks for us all. Um, Thanks, guys. And so, <laughs> yeah. Um, Bless. Yeah. Um, well, hey, you know, aside from his filmography, you know, Tom Hanks had to contribute something else to the world. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, half of that was going to be Chet Hayes. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I, but I do like the kind of, you know, obviously uh, Guy is drawn to Rita Wilson because, of course, she is beautiful um, in this film. And um, she I don't, she is kind of playing somebody who kind of is probably a little tired of like jazz players, <laughs> even though she's in a jazz bar. Um, and I do like that she kind of points out that, oh, yeah, Del Paxton's in here. And of course, instantly Guy just stops looking at her. <laughs> He's like instantly kind of like, oh, where's Del Paxton? And. I like that she acknowledges that and she's like, I've lost your attention, haven't I? <laughs> it's like, you know, instantly, you know, he's drawn to Del Paxton, uh, played, of course, by Bill Cobbs, who is a wonderful actor. Um, and, you know, he kind of he does the kind of thing here of, um, you know, because I, I think, you know, a, a lot of the guys who are playing musicians in this film, they do kind of manage to embody, um, you know, a certain type. And he is obviously playing... Um, I don't know if it's meant to be kind of it's not obviously not Miles Davis, but, you know, he's kind of playing that kind of late 40s um, kind of cool jazz type of uh, character. And, you know, he, he like I like that he kind of, um, you know, like you say, he the advice he gives is like, don't try and keep the band together. Like there's no there's literally no point in trying to do that. Like it's it's not going to be of any benefit to you. Like just just do what you want to do and play your music. And then obviously, if there are other people around you who also want to play that music, then there you go. That's your band. Um, but I but also it's kind of it's that thing where you know um, you know there are certain jazz musicians who were who had like a regular band. Like if you think of Miles Davis, he had a he had a bunch of people who always played with him, but their names are never on the cover because it's. Miles Davis and I think the similar thing is being kind of implied here with Del Paxton where it's like it's Del Paxton on the cover but obviously he has a band that plays with him but there it's not the it's not the Del Paxton band or whatever like you know they're not going to get the credit it's Del Paxton who that is what people are buying um, and I think he's trying to kind of impart that knowledge to Guy and say look you know you you want to be the person who is the star don't be in a band and kind of you know it's because it's just going to be too difficult to kind of you know, stay together. That just doesn't happen. Unless, of course, you are the Rolling Stones and you stay together for like 45-something years and, you know, the only thing that's going to break you up is the death of people. Um, uh, unfortunately. R.I.P. Yeah. Charlie Watts. Uh, and we find out where the bass player is because he spoke about it earlier in the film when he found out they were going to L.A. and he said, oh, Disneyland. And so, of course, he met some soldiers um, and they have taken him to Disneyland. And this leads to, in the end credits, Mickey Mouse and Goofy being billed as themselves. Um, <laughs> so uh, obviously Tom Hanks has a sense of humor. Uh, but yeah, I like that basically the bass player kind of just like goes to Disneyland and that's the last we see of him. Like yep. we get we get like an end title card to, to, let, to let us know what happened with his life. But it's like, yeah, he just he just went to Disneyland and then never came back. And the band never bothered to try tracking him down. They were just like, OK, I guess he's he's gone. <laughs> Um, yeah, and this is where we do get the ominous, you know, Faye has been taken care of. And then we get a nice little montage. And <laughs> turns out she's having a, a very nice dress. Um, and obviously she's having her hair done. And then she gets escorted into the building uh, by a brief cameo by Colin Hanks, who's there for like three seconds. Uh, but I understand there's more of him in like the extended version of the film. There's like a bit more of like 
um, you know, Colin Hanks like doing stuff. Um, <laughs> but mm. as it is, he's just here for like a very brief moment. Um, where I think it, it's there's not a ton of score in the movie. Mostly the the music is mostly songs. But for Faye's little shopping and arriving at uh, CB at CBS Studios montage, there's a lovely little piece of score by that by Howard Shore. I, I'm assuming, um, and it's just it's just it, it's like it's not. The movie's not really a musical because the songs aren't necessarily used to explicate character or forward the plot, but it's almost like Faye, that's Faye's little musical number right there. Or like one of two. We're about to get to the set. Like if this were a musical that you could take the hook of that little piece of score and turn it into her big song. Like it's just this nice little thing that you don't notice because it's it's not especially flashy or anything. But when I used to put this on at the video store, I would work on like just gradually over time. It got into my head. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. Uh, mm. Obviously, Howard Shaw would go on to score some other films with uh, Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. would make significantly more money than this film. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, of course, Tom Hanks. Hil- called- it would be hilarious if off the strength of this movie, like one of them got the gig for the other on, <laughs> yeah. on Lord of the Rings. Liv Tyler's like, Liv Tyler's like, like Liv hey. Tyler books it. Yeah. Liv Tyler books it and she's like she's like, Hey, I don't know if you got a score guy, but there's this guy who I never met, but we worked on this movie a couple of years ago. He did a really did me a solid with this nice little score cue. You should you should hear him, he's great. I, what's what's funny is of course the filming for Lord of the Rings, I think, started in like ninety seven. So wow. this film would have been out and Liv Tyler would have been like literally um, you know, they would have been preparing the kind of all the previous stuff, like literally the same year that this film came out. It's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, of course, uh, this is where Peter, Tom Hanks calls in a few more favors. Uh, he has mm-hmm. Peter Scolari as the host mm-hmm. of um, the uh, the Hollywood showcase. And he also has playing the role of Gus Grissom, uh, Brian mm-hmm. Cranston, two men whose um, buttocks I have both seen on television um, mm-hmm. and film. And, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of just an odd thing that these are the two. These are the two that he picked, mm-hmm. um, you know, to have this uh, this kind of thing. Of course, um, you know, uh, both very good actors. Um, Peter Scolari in Girls in particular. Oh, I love such him. a great like hmm. such a such a great uh, kind of performance that he puts in. But there. then also, honey, um, I shrunk the kids. The know. series. Come on, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I give a shout out to Brian Cranston doing an amazing job acting as an astronaut trying to act on a TV show? He's so, so charming. Yeah. He's so good. I, I love how wooden he is. Yeah. He's perfect. And this was Malcolm um, in the Middle Era, Brian Cranston. This was before uh, he was fairly noticeable to everybody yeah. else. So. A, a pre buttocks Cranston. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I no the first episode of Malcolm in the Middle. He's standing in the kitchen oh, naked, right. getting his back shaved. So <laughs> he has never been shy about getting his buttocks out for television. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it's almost a challenge to keep him clothed most days. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, he is great because he's basically playing two different levels of playing Gus Grissom, playing someone mm-hmm. who can't act on TV, um, which of course mm-hmm. calls back to all those wonderful variety shows where most of the time you're like this is all terrible why are they doing this why am i watching this show um and and for some reason over here the bbc just kept trying to do like variety shows for years and years and years and then eventually they just gave up on it they were like 
we'll just have ballroom dancing. Um, yeah, and so, of course, we get the kind of, the final performance, as it turns out, of the, of the Wonders. Um, you know, they, they, they play the longer, the slightly longer version, which I think has got like a middle eight that is missing for the rest of the film um, of that thing you do. Uh, and, you know, back in Erie, everybody is watching enthusiastically and his father and his mother are very supportive and excited to see their son on TV, which is a nice turnaround because you were expecting that he would have been, you know, like you'll never make it or whatever. But no, like he, he genuinely enjoys the performance. Chad isn't bitter. He's just there <laughs> enjoying himself. There. Like, like, does he live yeah. there now? Like, I like to think he does. <laughs> <laughs> He's well, the new guy. I mean, yes. new guy. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, like, I guess. I mean, who else is in, in Guy's bedroom? Nobody else. So may as well, mm-hmm. I don't know, he's probably paying some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of rent to live there. Um, but yeah, no, and obviously uh, during this performance, they kind of, what's funny is like they take Lenny and instead of calling him Lenny, they call him Leo mm-hmm. um, on like mm-hmm. the little caption thing. I, I'm guessing this is meant to be like a callback to kind of like, um, you know, the, the Beatles performance on mm-hmm. Ed Sullivan. They do mention mm-hmm. that in passing. Um, mm. So having the kind of the different names, um, and obviously you know you have uh, you have Jimmy and you have Shades, and you know under Jimmy they say <laughs> be careful he's engaged, um, and I like that uh, Jonathan Sheck kind of he sees his own caption is like what, but he keeps singing, um, you know he keeps performing, uh, but yeah I, I I I what I like about this is kind of like this is like the peak of their career like they are performing on tele- like a national audience on television. But it's also the end of their career. Like, this is it. It's over. Um, you know, there's, mm-hmm. like, there's nothing more after this. Um, although those captions did remind me a little bit more of um, the Ruttles, where they do have a similar <laughs> thing, where they have little captions. Yes. Under... <laughs> um, and, and I love Jimmy's reaction, again, is like that he takes this artifice so deeply to heart because, he, because he's so self-serious. Like, he can't shrug like like a chiron that was on screen for for 15 seconds like is 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 binding to him like that's that's that this is now canon as far as he's concerned like it's and i love it i i just love that it's like he thinks everything is bullshit while not actually seeing but from a dismissive perspective while not actually seeing what is really bullshit about what about what they do uh god yeah he's such a jerk <laughs> and instantly such a hot jerk yeah. <laughs> yeah instantly in the dressing room um you know he it's noticeable of course that the bassist has not joined them I like as well that they kind mm. of when they put when they put Wolfman on screen, the director goes too scary, and then <laughs> move on to <laughs> which, which is a funny thing. Uh, but yeah, so Wolfman isn't in the dressing room, but obviously Jimmy is, and uh, you know Lenny is, and obviously um, you know Faye is there, and she she's kind of insisting that she didn't say anything to them, and you know she isn't the one who's kind of come up with this, and Jimmy's just not happy about it. Um, and this leads them to kind of break up. Um, but what I think is funny is obviously a uh, guy is late into the dressing room. So he's like being very mm. kind of, you know, upbeat and fun and happy. And then when she's basically like, I've wasted like a thousand kisses on you, she breaks up and he's kind of like a little bit kind of like doesn't know what to say. Um, you know, and I, you know, I don't think it's ever explicitly said, but I'm guessing it was Mr. White who kind of announced uh, this engagement for them. 
um, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, he's the one. He's because he says, you know, the who because he's like, who came up with this? And he and obviously, Mister White, he's like the person who thought you were a decent guy, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so that's it. They broken up. Um, you know, Faye is gone, um, and Lenny, uh, along with his receptionist, decides to go to Las Vegas, and he keeps trying to borrow money off people, and no one will give him any money. But then when when guy comes in and he's like, "Can I borrow two hundred? He's like, "Yeah, sure, pocket change." <laughs> and he just gives him two hundred dollars. Um, I uh, I love uh, Faye's breakup, and th- this is where if if this had been adapted for the stage, like so many other slightly musically inclined or not even musical movies had been this this would absolutely be her big number but like i'm really kind of fascinated that it's like we spend the whole movie with jimmy as he's the artist he's the wordsmith and then when the chips are down and like when like she is legit heartbroken and she just opens her mouth and this perfect blow-off speech comes out and all he's got is some like really childish retort it's not to me it 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 doesn't strain credulity. I think it's just solid writing and solid performance and it's like wow, she actually has been like more than just some inspiration this whole time. She's a whole person with probably a better brain than anybody else in the room. Yeah. Um I should say we skipped over this but earlier um uh, Getty Wanatabe made a cameo as mm. a photographer. Uh, for Playtone, he was mm-hmm. taking pictures at the thing, and he had, of course, worked with Tom Hanks previously in the film uh, Volunteers. Um, so again, Tom Hanks, just anybody he's ever met, he's like, come and be in my film, uh, and they all turn up. Um, uh, yeah, so you know, we we then kind of oh, it's weird because this is where the film starts to really kind of like jump pretty quick between stuff, and all of a sudden we're in the studio, and. Um, you know, this is where Mr. White gets very serious and he's like, you've got to record these songs because that's what the contract says. And Jimmy's like, I'm not recording covers. And then he basically goes, I quit. And then he just walks out. Um, mm. And, you know, then Wolfman is like, I'm guessing you guys don't need me for today. So I'm going to go home and off he goes. And mm. we don't know where Lenny is because Mr. White is like, where is Lenny? And <laughs> like, we don't know. Uh, we do get a quick cut to Smash Lenny. Two. Yeah, Lenny gets married in Vegas. And he's one. He's got a lot of chips. So that two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. I'm sure he's going to give back to uh, to Guy because he made it all back. <laughs> uh, also, I don't know if that two hundred dollars is like a reference to the fact that both their earlier gigs they were going to be paid a hundred dollars. So that two hundred dollars was effectively the the two. That's mm. the only money we've heard them earn is those two hundred dollars that they had in their first two gigs for like a hundred dollars for each, wasn't it? For the um, yeah. Mm. So uh, yeah. So. You know, he's told that basically the wonders were in breach of contract. Guy is sitting there behind the kit and then he just starts kind of uh, jamming, uh, just playing a little riff that he calls I Am Spartacus, uh, written by Tom Hanks. Um, He came Mm. up with that little riff. Um, And of course, the people that are in the booth kind of hear it and they're like, um, you know, that's good. You know, they're basically like, you're Mm. a good drummer. Um, And then, uh, like, Dell comes out and and is like you know just uh, you know he's like I enjoyed that just you know play it again uh, he sits behind the piano um, and I like that you know when he says I can't remember the name of the guy he says he's down the you know down the in the other studio recording with um, but obviously like guy is like oh bring can him. he jam you know? with us and I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and I like I like that Dell is like no it's you know let's just keep it between us like we'll just we'll just jam. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, he en- asks the engineer to, you know, roll tape on it, uh, which would cost mm-hmm. money. So, 
you know, the fact that Dell mm. is willing to just, you know, just to kind of record a bit of a jam session, um, you know, shows that he's it a is, bit generous, um, you know. It is kind of the one sneaky thing that Guy does in the whole movie, which is basically doing this on Playtone's yeah. tab because <laughs> yeah. they book the session for the day. Oh, and w- one other thing I do want to say uh, about Mr. White's exit. I love that you just feel these storm clouds gathering for this entire third act where everyone's getting distracted from being in the band and this one's off at Disneyland, this one's in Vegas, and finally Jimmy quits. And then Mr. White is basically just like, the consequences are, there are no consequences. Whatever, enjoy the studio, (laughs) Like, again... Be out of the hotel. But you gotta get out of the hotel. Like, like, (laughs) I, I I love this movie's unflinching fidelity to... Things just yeah. kind of going if okay. If I can, like, I... I'm sorry. So the one of my favorite slash least favorite moments of this entire movie, which I is is a favorite of mine, lifelong favorite, is is when Jimmy quits because they're well, obviously um, for Leandra. This is the scene where Mr. White talks about recording that thing you do in Spanish, and of course we Very all laugh romantic. because that's a, that's mm. a universally yeah. applicable joke. Um, and Jimmy is talking about like oh so so Mr. White says write something peppy something snappy and Jimmy's like sure so he starts singing into the the mic I I quit I quit I quit and then he says I quit Mr. White and then Mr. White says Jimmy just quit and it's <laughs> somehow the funniest exchange of dialogue is that like four I quits like in succession followed by Jimmy just quit like Oh, if you didn't gather the the import of what just happened, <laughs> Jimmy just quit. Oh, is that what yeah. that meant? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have liked to have heard them at least take a shot at uh, Aso K two Hesus. You like, you know, mm-hmm. like just give us a give us a verse or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, we've been told that everyone's got to get out of the hotel, so of course we go back to the hotel and we get Lamar one final time. I mean, <laughs> of course, uh, because mm-hmm. this third act is partially about him for some reason um yeah so he kind of lets everybody know who's checked out um but he says that you know Faye uh, is sitting by herself in the cafe uh, jimmy's already checked out obviously we haven't seen lenny we don't know where the bass player is so i don't know what's going to happen to their stuff um but you know it's going to be taken away i guess somewhere um and this is where uh you know obviously Faye and guy um you know she, like he's kind of discussing what she's going to do she says i'm going to go back to erie um, and he said, you know, obviously he's he he jammed with uh, he jammed with Dell, and you know he's going to stay in L.A. and see if he can make it, which seems to make sense because uh, at this particular point in time, I'm sure session drummers were in high demand. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. if you could drum, uh, and you could get the recommendation of someone like uh, with someone's status like mm-hmm. Dell Paxton, I'm sure you could probably just like sit in a studio for eight hours every single day and just play. Like to just random people kind of walking by, um, you know, make quite mm-hmm. a lot of money out of that. So, you know, that's a good choice to stay in L.A. Um, you know, in fact, it makes absolutely no sense for guys to go back to Erie. Like, why would he go back to his family's appliance store? Like, you know, Chad is completely settled in. There, so um, and I'm sure in the very near future will be his like brother in law or something. So, you know, he's he's got no reason to go back. And also. There's no pressure from his family either. Like in some of the films, there would have been like the family calling him and saying, you've got to come home and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's a pipe dream. And, you know, but instead, you know, his dad's just back home, like happily pretending to drum to that thing you do. Like there's no mm. urgency from his family to have him come home. They're just like, yeah, sure. Enjoy your life. Um, 
Yeah, so, you know, and this is the point where a guy says, you know, when was the last time that you were decently kissed? And, you know, she's she kind of names, like, not Jimmy, basically. So, um, you know, we find out mm. that Jimmy is not a good kisser. Um, and, you know, so he then kisses her so that she's she's recently been decently kissed. Um, and as I said, I, like, this is kind of where I was like, okay, I, like... You know, they struck me as friends, but uh, uh, this is kind of coming a bit out of left field. Um, and then the end end credit cards will reveal that they got married. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. Uh, but yeah, I, it's just one of those weird things because like I just did not feel like any real kind of chemistry in that way between the two. But you know, I guess Tom Hanks is like, you know, they're the two people who are left. The rest of the band have all vanished. So you know, she's she's got to mm-hmm. get with someone, and this is the person she gets with. Um, you know. I would have preferred that like Tina showed up and was like, Hey, I had no interest mm-hmm. in the band because Faye, I was into you. And then that would be, but you oh, know, that would that have been great. Was unlikely to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlikely to happen in 1964. Um, I want that yeah. movie. so I don't know. I, it's, it's kind of a, like just a quick ending where like they kiss and then it's like, uh, credits. Yeah. Uh, they, they got married. <laughs> they punched uh, out a couple of Colin Hanks's. And move to like Washington, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> Puget Sound or something. Yeah, um, uh, Jimmy becomes a record producer. Uh, he also has a band that he named after the band name where they were like, um, what's the, the band name? The Herdsman. Yeah, the Herdsman. Yeah, which they mentioned as a name earlier. So obviously he just stole that name. Um, and then you know, uh, Lenny <laughs> is a casino manager somewhere in Nevada. So I guess he never. He never got Apparently out. Currently single. Of, 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 uh, Aww. Yeah, which I, yeah, perpetually. Um, and then we find out that the bass player, who is credited as uh, TB player, <laughs> in these end in the in the end cards, he's credited as that. But on the on the credits, it just says the bass player. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, he went to Vietnam uh, and he got some Purple Hearts, and then he came home and he works in construction in Florida, yep. <laughs> which I guess is a choice. Um, yeah, and a you know guy also teaches jazz composition uh, at a music conservatory, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that's it. And I'm like, and Tina has okay. no cavities. It doesn't say that, but we can assume. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Chad's yes. arm eventually uh, mended, and he sold a washing machine. Just the one. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was a great day. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny because obviously Chad having a, a cast on for pretty much the entire film. Uh, kind of means that this entire film happens within at least six weeks. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I believe so. Guy says to Dell they've been together two months, and then like right at the end when they not the end, right when they introduce Wolfman as the new bass player, and this is like the scene after he said they've been together for two months. Guy's like, no offense, we've been together a while. I'm like, have you? Have you though? <laughs> Yeah, Chad only Chad has broke his arm so close ago that he's still got a cast on it from that break. Um, so you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't get any other kind of uh, story about what happened to everybody else, but yeah, the, you know, we find out what happened to the the members of the band, and that's the end of the film. Um, and as we said, we get a slightly different version of a song called "That Thing You Do," which plays over the uh, the end credits. Um, and that was it. That was Tom Hanks's, you know, debut in uh, directing. Um, his next choice for film will be a, a, a really odd choice. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this is kind of, I guess, uh, it's it's funny because obviously, you know, um, 
you know, Forrest Gump came out and was like a gigantic hit and, you know, was the ultimate like boomer wet dream of like everybody who lived in the 60s was great. And everybody, you know, uh, every baby boomer is wonderful and they all did wonderful things. Mm. And, you know, even if they lost their legs, they ended up getting magical legs in the end. And, you know, um, it's all about <laughs> everybody succeeding. And, you know, people became billionaires by accident just by opening, you know, um, you know, a shrimp restaurant. Um, and hmm. this kind of feels like it's in roughly the same mode where Tom Hanks is like, boomers are great and the 60s were wonderful. And so here is a film where, you know, something that happened in the 60s that shows how everything is great in the 60s. You know, this band, they they managed to succeed, you know, based on their own talents. And, you know, there was no nobody kind of helped them. They just kind of succeeded because they were great. And, you know, the world is a meritocracy. And here are some people with talent. Hmm. And, you know, it obviously is like the world's biggest like wish fulfillment of like this this band that just get really famous for a one hit. And obviously calling them the wonders is a deliberate, you know, when towards the end, mm-hmm. Tom Hanks literally says one hit wonders. That's like a familiar story. Um, and, you know, I think it is kind of a very, as we said, like there's a lot of things in this where you expect someone to do something. And then they just go completely against type. And, you know, the first manager is very friendly. Mr. White is like, you've broken your contract, but don't worry, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> like, it you know, like, Yeah, you know, just sit here and enjoy the studio for the next couple of hours. But by the way, you've got to check out of the hotel this afternoon. <laughs> like, there's, it's, it's, one of the, it's, it's so weird because it's like, I, there's no way that like a film like this could ever succeed in 2021 because it would like someone would have to be murdered or there would have to be someone ripping someone off or like both, you know, like, or, like the whole thing, like or one of the drummers would be killed in a car crash or like there would have to be some level of tragedy. And I think, you know, Tom Hanks is kind of painting the sixties as like the most perfect time to be a teenager. Um, you know, and I, like it is relentlessly optimistic um and i think that's the kind of thing that i ended up liking about this film was just like it's just you know an hour and 40 minutes of tom hanks being like what if the world was nice and everybody was as nice as me <laughs> and you make an you make an excellent point because they don't genuinely put out movies anymore that are just meant to be a nice time at the movies and that's kind of all this one is like it is it, it, it's an aim small, miss small kind of movie. So even though it flopped and then found its adherence later is kind of kind of just fine because it's a movie about things being sort of fine. Uh, I remember reading an interview with Tom Hanks at the time and that the reason he chose to set it in 1964 is that it was kind of the to his way of thinking, it was kind of the last uh, the last simple year Um which for white people may have been true. White what white middle class East Coasters might have been true. Um but even then, I mean you are talking about this is less than a year after John Kennedy's been assassinated. They stay at the Ambassador Hotel where a few years later Robert Kennedy will be assassinated. But that's not what this movie is about. Like you can it kind of argues that could you now nowadays could you set a movie in two thousand one without having the specter of 9-11 hanging over it I don't think you could but only because you're not allowed to make movies that don't apply that kind like that aren't set in a time period for that specific period for that for a specific we all know the history reason you know um and in that regard like 1964 kind of works because again like there is no like 1964 is not a year that cuts through to the center of our minds like, oh, God, that was the year of blank. 
Like it's 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 sort of a blank slate for them to operate. And I I do love that. For, like I said before, a lot of people uh, underestimated this movie as being something of a Beatles knockoff. Which, apart from a couple of isolated moments that are deliberately how the Beatles' vibe was disseminating through culture, like it's not about the Beatles. It's actually about the bands that never even made it to that status. Like one of my pet favorite movies is a movie I saw on Turner Classics about 20 years ago. It's called Pop Gear, um, which is all it is, is just, it is basically like if they made, if they shot a film of one of the state fairs or of the Hollywood showcase, it unfortunately, it, you can find clips from it on YouTube. Be selective because it was hosted by Jimmy Savile, who of course brings baggage on baggage with him and is highly skippable if you just look up the songs but it's like the songs there are a couple there's a beatles clip at the top and at the tail which were obviously not shot anywhere near the sound stage that the rest of this thing was it was just let's say the beatles are in this and use file footage but it's like it's all these acts like eric burden and the animals or like billy j kramer or herman's hermits and those are just the ones you would have heard of like sounds incorporated in the honeycombs and and um, the Nashville teens have not broken through, but they were, it, if anything, I like the fact that where that thing you do ends up, it ends up being a celebration of those almost were bands uh, instead of just, oh, let's look back at a time of Beatlemania. Yeah. Um, it's funny because um, yesterday I saw the film Paw Patrol the movie at the cinema with my niece, mm-hmm. with my mom. And in that, one of the dogs has PTSD. And that's like a main storyline. And it's like, you know, like even in a kid's film, they have to put something like that these days. Whereas, you know, nobody Mm. in that thing you do has PTSD about anything. They're all just really happy. Even the bassist is happy about going off to Vietnam. He's like, (laughs) you know. I'm, I'm going to join the Marines. And he's very upbeat and yeah, happy about Saul it. Saul Seiler yeah. mentions Lee Harvey so, Oswald. It's like a throwaway joke. Like, no one has a yeah. problem. There is no problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, wait. I actually want to ask if Paw Patrol, the movie, is willing to tackle serious subjects like PTSD. Do they talk about how uh, Chase is basically, like, running Adventure Bay with an unelected vigilante squad because Mayor Goodway has basically like abdicated all responsibility. The film isn't set in Adventure Bay. Uh, oh, okay. Because they they were they didn't want to tackle the serious subject. A chase is the one with PTSD because he was abandoned as a puppy, oh. and that's where they're going. They're going to where he was abandoned, so it brings back bad memories. Oh, there's a couple of rescues where oh, he can't okay. do any rescuing because he's <laughs> so traumatized by being in the big city. So. They um, are they are really skating past all those militia issues, and I, I think that's that's uh, a failure of conscience for that movie. There is there is a mayor who manages to win by it's implied getting rid of his competition, so he's the only name on the ballot. Um, so Duh. Yeah, they do tackle that kind of corruption, um, and he has an infinite supply of top hats. Uh, so uh, yeah, <laughs> so Helen, your thoughts on the film? Not Paw Patrol, not that film. <laughs> um, well. Um... I, I like that thing you do. I mean, there are a couple of things. I think it does end kind of abruptly. I think the, I guess what is intended to be the primary romance um, also sort of sneaks up. And I have to, like, after the fact, decide that I'm okay with it. Um, 
I do find guy obnoxious some of the time, but I think that's more like a white jazz guy thing and not a guy guy thing. <laughs> um, I don't know. I love I love that thing you do, and I think Darren, you said it was like basically like Tom Hanks giving us a movie that's like, what if everyone was Tom Hanks? And it does feel like that to me, and it feels <laughs> like a gift. Um, and I think the music, especially, is is really really special. Um, that's like another reason I wish I could watch it for the first time again because obviously they don't use any true 60s hit songs but by the by this time like when i watched it again yesterday like i already know all the songs from this movie so they do feel like old friends and i'm nostalgic (laughs) for you know when i watched when i watched this movie 25 years ago um but i think it would be fun to hear those songs again for the first time and just be like oh that's a really nice like sort of supremes send up or like that's a good like sort of sinatra number um Diane Dane, oh, what a bitch, you know? Like, it would be fun mm-hmm. to see for the first time again. Um, and generally, I don't have a lot of gripes. I have I have my own Eaters t-shirt. I have only two movie t-shirts total. Um, the other one is Clueless, Darren, so. <laughs> um, I was, I, sh- I forgot to mention that the, the typeface that they use for the wonders when they're on stage at the end is uh, the same typeface that use, is used for Rotten Tomatoes and for the poster of Clueless. Hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's what you get for being a graphic designer is you just happen to notice typefaces all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And Leandra, your thoughts on the film? It's a good, a good film. I, I really don't have any complaints with it. I've, I've never gone into it going, I need this to really make me think. Mm-hmm. I, I'm i just there listening to it and watching fun things happen to fun people and sometimes mildly bad things happen to mildly bad people. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's fine. I mean, at one point it does rain in the film that's, for about 30 seconds. Yeah, that's sad. And then they move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you need um, So let's officially... <laughs> yeah. So let's officially rank it then, and we'll go with Alex first. T-Hanks or no T-Hanks? This one's a big T-Hanks for me. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, at this point, only watch it once every couple of years, but when I get in the mood for it, there is nothing quite like it. Uh, so yeah, I think it was... I'm sure he had hoped for greater success from his directorial debut. I'm sure a lot of other people did. But I think it's nice that he took his stardom and clout and this is what he chose to do with it. Uh, Big T Hanks for me. Um, Everything I already said, plus Chad, plus Adam Schlesinger. It's just everything I like. This is the platonic ideal of T Hanks. It really is. This is exactly like what that bar is. And I'm good with it. Yeah, and I would definitely say T. Hanks from me. You know, like I said, I up until this point, I never really thought I should watch this film. But, you know, it's an enjoyable film. If anybody wanted to say, you know, should I watch this film? I'd say, yeah, you probably should. You know, if, it's you know, pleasant. Just, yeah, if you just want to have <laughs> if you just want to have fun and just watch people like enjoying themselves, um, then, you know, go ahead and do that. Um, so let us move into plugs then. Is there anything that you wish to plug? And I'm going to start with uh, Helen first. Oh, heck, sure. Um Hi, I'm Helen. Yeah, so I have a podcast called Falling in Love Montage, wherein my sister Valerie and I talk about chick flicks. Um, We are just about to, well, when this has come out, wait, let me take that again. We just recently talked about um, the 1993 movie, The Thing Called Love, which also features a scene where someone hears their song on the radio for the first time. Very different, but it has Dermot Mulroney in a cowboy hat. So, you know, thumbs up. 
Um, and you can find us at fallinglovemontage.com, any of your favorite podcatchers. Um, we all write, and we've covered a Tom Hanks movie one time so far. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I'm Leandra, and if you want to hear more of my beautiful voice, or my mediocre voice, depending on how you feel, you can go to rockyharminute.com. That's the podcast that I do. It's, we break down the Rocky Horror Picture Show in excruciating detail, one minute at a time. And you can find us pretty much, yeah, any place you can find your podcasts. Yeah, uh, currently I'm co-hosting a podcast with my friend Laura Hertzfeld. It's called This Year's Rent with Laura and Alex. We are doing a bit of a retrospective for the 25th anniversary year of the somewhat polarizing, even between the podcast hosts, musical Rent. Uh, we've had some really spectacular guests on. We are right in the middle of a two-parter where we had on Adam Shapiro from um, uh, Netflix's Never Have I Ever and who was in Waitress on Broadway and who played Mark in a production of Rent out here in L.A. about 10 years ago. Really thoughtful guy uh, Some and a really great episode with him. And meanwhile, Laura and I just kind of cross-examine our complicated feelings uh, where... Uh, about Rent, where for her, it's it's been her ride-or-die show for uh, two and a half decades, and for me, uh, I uh, absolutely adored it when it was new and have spent most of the last 25 years flipping back and forth on whether it's something I enjoy or makes me cringe or makes me cringe and I enjoy it. Um, and apropos enough, actually, like at the time that That Thing You Do came out, I think the That Thing You Do soundtrack was what kicked the Rent cast album out of rotation for me, uh, much to the relief of my roommates. Um, and uh, because it was uh, after spending months, you know, just looping a cast album of everybody dead or dying, uh, something where people were just cheerful all the time was a really nice, uh, really nice gear to shift into. I mean, could you give me an estimate of exactly how many minutes you were listening to that soundtrack of Rent? <laughs> uh, an aggregate an aggregate total of uh, I know what you're trying to get me to say say uh, the number say the number uh, uh, this year's rent can be found wherever you get your podcast and we are using it uh, to uh, help raise money for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS great stuff well thanks to everyone for being my guest here today uh, to talk about that thing you do thank you for having me thank you for having us I, I, I thank you for doing for that world. thing you do this oh, podcast yes uh, <laughs> hey um well i mean i think this week uh you know this episode has been very much about um how pleasant um you know tom hanks is and how pleasant he wants the world to be um uh, but i think next time we're going to be uh, experiencing something a lot more brutal um you know so we'll begin we're going to be saving private Ryan. <laughs>